As we come into this last section of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28, Luke writes for us of Paul's last encounter here with the group of Jews from whom this message uh, began. If you recall, it was Jesus who gave the command, the great commission, to go into all the world and to make disciples. He does this at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 28. But if you look at the beginning of Acts chapter 1, we also are told that it is Christ who commissions uh, them there as well. But the way that the book begins, the way that Luke writes the beginning of the book of Acts, is similar to the way that he begins or, or, or that he ends the book of Acts. Not only, uh, not just in terms of the narrative, because Luke can't control the, the narrative of what happens, but what Luke wants us to see is that it is now time to make a decision about who Jesus is. In the beginning of Acts, the reason, the purpose for the writing of this letter, all the way in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, Luke says this, in the first book, that is his letter, uh, or the gospel of, of Luke, in his gospel, uh, he says in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after, suffer, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while he was staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And when we go down, we hear Jesus' own words in verse 8. Jesus tells them this, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And as Jesus finished saying that, he ascends into heaven and the disciples there are left with angels who tell them, why, why are you staring up there? Why are you looking at the, heaven, at the heavens? They tell the disciples this, This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So this is what Luke is trying to communicate. This is what Luke is wanting us to understand. He wants us to understand this. He's already written a book, an account of who Jesus is, the gospel of Luke. Here's the story of Jesus's life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. 
And we're told that this is written to a man called Theophilus. Now, Theophilus uh, is a kind of a middle-class Roman who was interested in kind of funding this research. And Luke, who was a doctor, made careful notes and interviewed everyone. He starts off the book of Acts much in the same way. But it is Luke's uh, job to collect these facts because this wealthy uh, kind of Roman, he's interested in learning the facts about who Jesus is. He's trying to make a decision. Who is this guy that everyone's talking about? And so he kind of funds uh, Luke's uh, writing of this account. And Luke presents it to Theophilus, giving him this introduction to his writings in chapter 1, saying this, Jesus began to teach until, after he, uh, until the day he was taken up. He gave commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He, he picked these guys to go and communicate, to declare the message. But beyond that, we're told that Luke's claim is that Jesus presented himself alive after he was dead, resurrected, the resurrected Christ. And he not only did this one time, but over the period of 40 days, appearing many times with many proofs. And not only did Jesus do this, but he spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is, is a very Jewish concept. That one day the scriptures say that God's kingdom will come and he will rule and reign and he will fulfill all of his promises here upon the earth. And so this is what the Jewish people were longing for. Now, beyond that, we saw back down in verse 8, it is Jesus' own words who said, that the, the gospel, the good news, would be proclaimed not only in Jerusalem and in Judea, the Jewish lands, but in Samaria, the Gentile lands, Israel's most hated enemies, and even beyond that. And as we've made our way through the book of Acts, we see that this is what has happened. The Holy Spirit has empowered God's people to go and proclaim the truth of the gospel, to communicate to the Jews, first through Peter, and then redeeming Paul on the road to Damascus. The Gentiles then become a focus. And as Luke closes the book in chapter 28, we see that he's doing something similar. He's kind of restating that it was accomplished. But now we see the the responses from these two sides. Because as it gets to the end of the book, it's time now for Theophilus to decide what he believes. And as we come to the end of the book, it is now time, friends, for us to decide what we believe about Jesus. The account that is contained here, the account that the disciples were willing to give their lives for, no one dies for a lie. These men were willing to give their lives because they believed this to be the truth. And so, it is our responsibility to decide what we believe about the gospel. Let's get to the text. Verse 16, we see Luke beginning to paint this picture. He's finally making his way 
to Rome. This is where Jesus promised he would end up. When we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Now, Luke reminds us here that he was with Paul. Right? He doesn't just say Paul, Paul was there by himself. He says, we came into Rome together. Now, we get confirmation of this when we read the book of Colossians and when we read the book of Philemon. We see there that Paul says, hey, Luke's with me and he's been very helpful to me and I, uh, I use him as a resource. And so Luke is there kind of tending to him. Uh, and Paul is allowed to stay by himself. He's not uh, put in some sort of military prison or he's not put into some sort of uh, prison camp or some crazy situation. But, but Paul is allowed to stay by himself. He's allowed to uh, have his own place of residence. And he's guarded here by a single soldier, just one, just one soldier. Now, this soldier, of course, would rotate out. It wouldn't just be the same guy, but he would make his way as everyone would take their turn on duty with Paul. But this suggested a couple things to us. First, it showed us that Rome really didn't consider Paul a threat. Otherwise, he would have been in a more serious prison. They wouldn't have let him go on leave to go and visit uh, on their way to the journey to go stay with some friends unless they considered him a, a threat. But they show him this great leniency. They show him to be someone who's just kind of like, we, we have this guy like in our system and like we just kind of have to keep an eye on him because that's what they tell us we have to do. He's not obviously someone who's going to uh, lead some crazy revolution. And so Paul is moved out from the bulk of uh, the rest of the prisoners who are guarded by the centurion and like these crazy, uh, these, these crazy like soldiers and, and put in these prisons. Paul's guarded by a single soldier and he is chained by the wrist to this guard. We get a little bit of that info in verse 20. But I think for Paul, although he was chained, And although he was inconvenienced, he did not take this opportunity lightly. Paul still had to be uh, locked up. He was still here falsely imprisoned. It wasn't his fault. He's experiencing injustice. But yet, it is no doubt that he took the opportunity to speak into the life of this guard, to declare the truth of the gospel, to get to know this singular person one-on-one time. It's no doubt that he sought to get to know each guard and to communicate the truth of the gospel into their lives, to introduce Jesus to them. Now, none of us are in this situation where we are in a in a in our homes, you know, or or in prison with a cellmate. But let me tell you this: in talking with people and talking with some of you over the last, you know, six years, it is clear that we are chained by the wrist to some people in our lives. Right? There are some annoying people in our lives that we're like, dang, I wish I could be gone. I wish that these people would not be so close to me, that they would not be so near to me. 
there are some people who are real difficult. There are people that we really don't like or really don't prefer, but yet we have these co-workers, we have these people in our study groups that we're like, oh my goodness. Paul didn't get to choose the disposition of the guards that were chained to him. Paul didn't get to choose, oh, you know, the people who were going to be the kindest to him. He didn't get to choose uh, only the extroverts who would want to have a big conversation the entire time. He just got who he got. And I think some of us feel like we are chained by the wrist to people in our lives. But let me tell you that that is an opportunity for us to speak the gospel into those relationships. The more that you feel like that, the more we ought to consider that the Lord has kept those people around for a reason. Perhaps for our sanctification, but perhaps so we might also glorify God through the sharing of the gospel. So take that annoying co-worker, take that really needy person in your study group, the person who can't stop copying everyone on emails, there is an opportunity for the gospel to go forth. Use your opportunities. Paul did. Now, Paul gets there to Rome. He's only been there a short while. We find in verse 17, after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. Now, look at what Paul does here. He is smart. He doesn't wait around for them to bring accusations against him. He doesn't wait and say, hey, I'm just going to be here in my house doing my thing. He goes on the offensive. He goes to the people and says, I'm going to explain my position before they hear incorrectly about what I believe and what has been done. And so what he does is consider that there were going to be false portrayals of his position. There were going to be false uh, false portrayals of his character, of the truth of the gospel, that people who didn't, who opposed the gospel were going to spin it in a way that would not truly represent his position. He just wanted to share the gospel with these men. And so he goes on the offensive. He reaches out to the Jewish leaders in this community. Rome had a massive amount of synagogues there. And so traditionally what would happen when Paul went to a city, right? Throughout the entire book of Acts, in his time of freedom, he would enter into the synagogues and he would proclaim the gospel first there among the Jews. But he can't do that because he's locked up. And so instead, he calls the Jews to himself. He says, you guys all come over here. I need to speak with you. And so what Paul does is then he gives them a quick summary of his reason for imprisonment. He doesn't want them to get the incorrect idea. And so he tells them, look, I've done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers. Yet I was delivered into, as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. 
He says, and they put me on trial. And they wanted to set me free because they saw that I didn't do anything that was deserving of death. Now, what Paul does here is he's communicating two things. First, that he is a faithful Jew. He indicates, I've done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers. I'm not coming against you and saying, like, those things aren't real. I'm not saying, like, I don't believe in them. He's not, he's trying to communicate that from the perspective of the Roman government, he's not trying to uh, throw the Jews under the bus and their uh, culture and their faith. But rather, he wants to be known as a faithful Jew among these Jews. And then he tells them this, number two, Rome examined me about the charges and they were like, we don't, we don't understand why you're being charged. They wanted to set him free. There's no reason. Back in Acts chapter 23, he first came under trial with Felix. In chapter 23, verse 29, here's Felix's own words regarding Paul. I found that he was being accused about the questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. So Felix is like, I don't know why we have this guy. He shouldn't be in prison or he shouldn't be killed. Second guy, Festus, Acts chapter 25, verse 25 says this, but I found that he had done nothing deserving death. So here's the second time he is declared to be innocent. And then a third time in Acts chapter 26, verse 31, Agrippa, Festus, and Bernice all come together and they have this conversation behind the scenes in verse 31. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. So Paul says, there's not really a reason for me to be in prison. They wanted to set me free. But then he he flips it and says, here's why I'm not free. Here's why I'm not free. Verse 19, but because the Jews objected, the Jews objected to his freedom. Because the Jews objected, I I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. Now, what Paul does is he says, really, the people who are to blame here, are the Jews, because Rome wanted to set me free, they're the government, but the Jews, they didn't want to have it. They didn't want to, they didn't want to let me go free. Uh, they didn't want to treat him fairly, and so Paul says, instead, what I had to do in order to make sure that uh, I wasn't put in a situation where I was subject to this mob rule, I was then forced to appeal to Caesar. Now, what happens here is Paul kind of gives a quick summary. The, the blame really lies kind of on both. It lies both on Rome and the Jews because back with Felix, Felix said that Paul was, was innocent. He was not deserving of death or imprisonment. But yet he kept Paul around because he was hoping that Paul would bribe him. So Felix wanted money. So he like didn't let him go because he thought Paul would pay his way out. Um, he thought Paul had like this you know, windfall of cash that he could uh, bribe Felix with. And then Festus, uh, he also, like Felix, wanted to do the Jews a favor. And so he kept Paul for political reasons and didn't let him go uh, as well. And so Paul, realizing that in the midst of this situation, like he's not going to go free, what he does then is he appeals to Caesar. But when he does this, typically what would happen is you're appealing the accusation. And so you're kind of trying to bring a countersuit against the people who are uh, bringing this accusation against you. And so Paul makes the note 
He says, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. He's like, I didn't even want to do that, but there was no other option for me uh, legally. He's like, but I don't even have anything bad to say about you guys. I'm not trying to throw the nation of Israel under the bus. I'm not trying to, to put them at odds with Rome. But I had to just get a situation where I could get out of this legal, uh, legal course. And so Paul, he kind of recounts these things. He says, the reason that I'm imprisoned is for the truth, the truth of the gospel. I'm here because Rome didn't want to free me, but it was the Jews who objected. Now, now what Paul does here is he wants them to understand the deeper reason. And so he goes in verse 20. And he says, here's the reason why I wanted to speak with you. Once, you could understand why I was in prison. But two, and this is the, the, the stronger reason. He says, for this reason, therefore, I'm asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. Now, that would be a familiar phrase to them, the hope of Israel. All Israel hoped for the Messiah to come. They hoped for the kingdom of God to come. There was a, an expectation, a longing, a great desire for, uh, for Israel to be set free from its oppressors. And Paul says, the reason that I'm in these chains is because of what you're actually interested in. The hope of Israel. He wants to expound the gospel to them. He wants to show that the true hope of Israel has ultimately been fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. That Jesus is the true fulfillment of the law. Jesus is the true fulfillment as the prophet, priest, and king. And so Paul says, I'm a prisoner in reality because I'm seeking to proclaim the gospel. I'm seeking to make the kingdom of God known among you. Now, verse 21, we get their first response. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. So their response, as Paul makes this request, they're like, sounds good. Like, we don't really know anything about you. The only thing that we know is like the, probably the things that you're talking about, people don't really like. The Jews don't really like what you're saying. But we haven't heard anything bad about you personally. Now, there are a lot of people who have said a lot of bad things about Paul, but probably God worked all things together for good. And the reason that there are no letters or no people who have come against Paul <coughs> is because of these winter storms. And Paul left early on this ship and they got put in danger. And so nobody else is going to risk their lives to bring a letter they're going to get some money for extra grain, you know, so these grain ships are going to sail so that they can get their reward. But they're not getting extra money to bring an accusation against Paul in a letter. So those things got pushed to the back burner. And so these letters, they, they probably people did write letters against him and they probably did want to bring accusation against him. Uh, so that was a possibility why they haven't heard. But beyond that, it because this case keeps getting upgraded, 
it seems like probably what happened as well is that the religious leaders, they just kind of decided to drop the case. It was required for the accusers to confront the accused in court, and they were like, this is like getting crazy and like out of control. Now they got to go to Rome and, and have this big fight before like the emperor, and it's like this massive journey for like one guy, and they're like, if we can just keep him at a distance, fine. Right? He's been in jail. Uh, he, had been, he had been in jail for two years, and so they were like, okay, like this, like he's been out of our hair for two years at least. And so it looks like probably they didn't follow through. Now, this group of Jews, they hear negative things about Christianity. They hear they, they don't like much of uh, what they've heard, and, but they've not heard anything specific from Paul. And so they say, hey, we'll, we'll give you a hearing. We'll give you a fair opportunity, you know, and we will uh, sit down and learn together. Now, verse 23, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Now, it previously it was Paul who took the initiative. He was the one, he got there and he's like, I'm going to go on the offensive and I'm going to invite all these guys to my place so they can hear. Now they've heard a little bit of what Paul wants to speak about and they say, we're going to get a date. We're going to get a date on the calendar and we're going to invite everybody. They take the initiative the Jews take the initiative. They appoint a day for him. They come to him at his place in huge numbers, like they pack it out. There were a ton of Jews in Rome. And so they, Paul couldn't go to the synagogue, but he could address this massive group of people, this uh, large amount of Jews. And probably what happened is that they ended up renting out like a larger space that was nearby, um, or maybe even trying to just pack as many people as they could into the house and doing it in waves. Um, because he, we're told, he speaks from morning until evening. Like, he's just like, all right, let's do this, right? So he's got like a, like a 12-hour day of just like preaching. From morning until evening, he expounded to them, testifying to them, testifying to the kingdom of God, there it is, the kingdom of God again, and trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets. So he opens up the scriptures to them, showing Christ to be the fulfillment of the law of Moses and of the prophets. All that is said in the law of Moses and the prophets, Paul says, these all point to Christ. He speaks to them about the kingdom of God and how Jesus is ultimately the one who fulfills that and he brings the kingdom of God. It was Jesus who coming to, in, in like his very first words to the masses, he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's Jesus who heralds in this kingdom of God. He brings it in. And so here Paul and Luke is making sure that we understand and that Theophilus understands that the king has come. The king is here to interact with all who would come to him, to invite all into his kingdom. 
And this would have been a longing, an expectation for this group of people, these Jews. He communicates from the scriptures. He's trying to convince them about Jesus. And he does this from scripture, from morning until evening, an entire day of intense discussion and teaching. I bet you this is like an amazing Bible study. It's probably off the hook. Paul just throwing down. Paul is a master. He's like the most educated, most eloquent Jew in this time who's a Christian. And he still gets two different responses. He still only gets two different responses because it's not up to him. He had more skills than we ever had and he still didn't get like 100%. It's the Holy Spirit who draws us. It's the Holy Spirit who works in us. So Paul did his part. He communicated the truth of the gospel. He exalted Jesus and showed that Jesus is the fulfillment. And we're told that there are two different responses. Some were convinced. And others disbelieved. Now, this doesn't mean that they were more solidified in their belief, but just that they continued in disbelief. So what is the reason that we point that out is because this is not a situation where uh, they're hardening their heart more specifically. It's just that they were they were when they started. There wasn't something that some monumental change that happened. They just continued saying like, yeah, um, we're not convinced. But some were. Some responded. Some felt that they saw Jesus as a fulfillment. Now those who continued in disbelief, they go away with those who continued, who, who, who began to believe. In verse 25, <clears throat> and we get kind of the, the attitude the motive that's in the air, the heart that is being communicated in the atmosphere. Verse 25, And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. So they're disagreeing. There's some that believe and some do not. What Paul wants us to see, what Luke wants us to see primarily is that the Jewish people as a whole are not all on board. There are some who are brought out, some who do believe, but they're treated as a community. They're treated as a community because God has offered them a covenant relationship as a community. And so Paul responds to them, not as individuals, but as a group. There's, even though some have are convinced They're not all convinced, and so he responds this way. By quoting Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. They departed after Paul had made one statement. Paul says this first, before he gets to his quote. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. 
Paul does two things here. First, he points out that the Scriptures in Isaiah, it was the Holy Spirit who was the author of these Scriptures. Divine inspiration. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers, through Isaiah the prophet, it was Isaiah who wrote on behalf of the Holy Spirit, communicating the Holy Spirit's words through Isaiah. But Paul says this, he was right in saying to your fathers. When Paul says that, what he's essentially doing is saying this, you guys are acting just like your fathers, like father, like son. And what Paul said, or or what Isaiah said to them through the Holy Spirit was this. That he would go to this group of people and he would say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. Isaiah was told that he would communicate the truth of the gospel But there would be difficulty that the people would not listen. Nevertheless, he was still commanded by the Lord to declare the truth of the gospel. Now, at the same time, Paul continues in the quote, giving us a little bit more insight. Not only showing that God knows that these people wouldn't listen, but also showing that God is desiring that he would draw them to himself. Verse 27, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can, they can barely hear, and with their eyes, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. So Paul puts forth to this group of people the same call for repentance that Isaiah rolled out. He says, you guys... You guys can't hear. You, I will communicate the message to you, but you will not hear. You have ears, but you will not hear. You have eyes, but you will not see. You have a little bit of senses. He says, but what happens with those little bit of senses, if you, if you do happen, if you do happen to catch a glimpse, if, you, if your ears do happen to hear, If you understand with your heart and you repent, then God will heal you. He will heal you. He will bring you to fullness. Now, when you read Isaiah, it can kind of be a little bit tricky. And I was was reading this the other day and kind of studying it and trying to figure out how I could communicate this most uh, accurately. Because it, it almost seems like when you're reading it, it's like God says, like, oh, you're, you're not going to hear. And Isaiah tells them, like, oh, you're not, you're not going to hear. And so, like, yeah, that's the stinks to be you that, like, you're going to hear it, but you're not going to hear it. Uh, but as I looked into it here and looked into the languages and the tenses and the way that it's written, uh, it became clear the way that this is written is lost on us in English. Because the tenses that he uses here are... Uh, I won't get grammatically nerdy, but essentially what he's trying to communicate here is uh, to write this in such a way that 
God's desire for them to respond is communicated through the lens of how you would treat a child in a mocking way in order to get them to do what you want them to do. What's being said here is, I'm going to say this, but I bet you guys can't hear it. Uh, He's trying to communicate to them, I'm going to show you some things, but I bet you can't see them. I bet you can't see what I'm about to do. He's slowly inviting them into it with a specific phrase and rhetoric that allows them to say, with that pride, he's playing on the pride that they have in their heart, to say, I bet you I can. Watch. Watch. I'm going to pay more attention now. You say I can't hear. I'm going to listen more closely. This is kind of what Paul's trying to get at. He's trying to uh, communicate it in a way where he's, he's almost teasing them. And, it, and it, the tease gets a little bit bigger in a moment here. Because Israel, they really want to be seen as righteous. They want to be seen as number one. They want to be seen as God's people. And so he communicates that God is willing. God wants to heal them. He says there, uh, he, in his quote there, he does say that God would turn. If they would turn, he would heal them. They would repent, he would heal them. But here's how now Paul traces it out just even a little bit further to really get them. Verse 28. Therefore, let it be known to you that this, this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And now all of a sudden it's like, look, if you guys don't want it, the God of Israel, he will be found by the Gentiles and he's already been doing it. And guess what? They will listen. So he's essentially saying like, seems like they're listening. Do you guys want to challenge them by also trying to listen? He's trying to put this out there for them and to contrast these responses. Paul's responsibility was to go to the Jews and to communicate that whenever he had the opportunity. He would do that. He took then the message to the Gentiles whenever the Jews would reject it. When they didn't, were, had, were done with him and they didn't want to hear it any longer, then he would say, all right, peace. I'm going to go to the Gentiles. He would go communicate to them and they would respond. And so what is being displayed here is that the Gentiles are eager to hear the truth of the gospel. What's being presented here is that not only have there been past successes, but there will be future successes. They will listen. Not they have listened. They will listen. They will continue to listen. And beyond this, they are. Paul is presenting and Luke is showing us that they have accomplished all that Jesus told them they should do. They've acted in the Holy Spirit. They've proclaimed the truth of the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And so this is not so much a matter of Jews versus Gentiles who will be in the family of God, but rather Luke writes us in a way to say, how will you respond? Will you respond like the Jews, or will you respond like the Gentiles, who will listen? 
Verse 30, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So Paul is essentially in, imprisoned for a total of four years. He, we're told that this happens at his own expense. In your Bibles, it might say uh, he rented his own place. That's basically what that means. He uh, rented his own house. He probably went back into like his tent making. So like he was still imprisoned. The guard was still with him, but he made money through tent making, financial contributions from other uh, churches that wanted to help him. Uh, but Paul, he paid his own way. He wasn't in this prison with everybody else, but he still had responsibilities. He didn't complain. He still had difficulties. He was still under injustice, but he was still like, I'm going to get to work. I'm going to do my job. I'm going to be a good citizen. I'm going to make myself known to the guards. Uh, in his letter, uh, in, his, in I think it's Second uh, Timothy, he says that he's known among all of the Praetorian guard. Everybody knows him. He's proclaimed the gospel like a ton of times. Um, and in the midst of this, Paul is not able to leave. And so his home becomes a base of ministry. He's like, all right, I got my own place. And now that means like I can have whatever visitors I want. So he can't go out, but he's like, everyone's just going to come to me. So his home is just like a revolving door. You just keep coming in. He'll spend time with you. Uh, he could not go out to the masses, but he could welcome them to himself. And when you came to him, he didn't just welcome you in, but he shared the gospel. Verse 31, he proclaimed the kingdom of God. There it is again, showing that he is faithful to that mission that was given in Acts chapter 1. He shared the gospel. He taught. He shared about Jesus. And he did this with boldness. The Holy Spirit working within him, that boldness isn't just means like, you know, he was pulling himself up by the bootstraps every day, but he was filled with the Holy Spirit, given this boldness by the Holy Spirit to continue to speak the truth day after day, even when maybe he's feeling beat down, when he's feeling discouraged after like, when am I going to be out of this legal loophole? He continued to speak the truth no matter what was happening. He was content in all situations, in all circumstances. And he did this with all boldness and without hindrance. This means uh, that there is really just a legal term. It means like that the government just kind of like let him do what he was going to do. There was, there was no like official uh, processes process that he had to go through. There wasn't anyone restraining him. The Jews in that city, like they didn't come against him. They, it was just like he was just free to just be locked up in his house and have people visiting him as much as he wanted. And nobody tried to place any restraints upon him. Uh, and he was able to bear witness to the Jews and to the Gentiles. He did exactly what Jesus told him he would do. He would go there and he would bear witness in Rome just as he had in Jerusalem. He completed the task. Now, the book ends like that. Psh, nothing. That's all we get. So what happened? What happened? Well, we, don't, we, don't, we can't say for certain because we don't have uh, a certain record, but we have church history. We have the ideas of uh, the church fathers and those who were closest to Paul from that time, who kind of shared a little bit of what uh, what church history has said. Um, what's likely is that 
because Paul was left alone, because he's there without hindrance, because he's able to just continue on with the single guard, because he rented his own place, it seems like the um, the charges against him were, were dropped because his accusers never showed up. The letters never showed up. Uh, and so there wasn't really a way for Paul. Like Paul was just basically waiting to get through the legal system. And after a while, if you didn't come and confront the charges, it was considered that you abandoned those charges. And so you, you kind of just went free. So that's essentially what... Um, what seems like what happened here there it looks like these people who were accusing him they forfeited their charges paul requested the em- the emperor but he didn't need to end up going before the emperor in this case uh, because the accusers never showed up and so the charges weren't actively pursued and so what happened uh that we get from the church history and from the church fathers uh looks like it says that paul was released uh and he had another period of public ministry for a short while, uh, possibly making it out um, towards Spain before he was rearrested and then conde- condemned to death uh, by decapitation. So he eventually goes back and is killed uh, in Rome. Finally, uh, he gets rearrested. Um, that's basically the, the short of it. I, I want to dig into it too much because it's not the same as a scripture, but it's an interesting read nonetheless. Um, But here's the deal. The truth of the matter is, is that Luke ends the book not with the end of Paul's story, but with the end of the story of the response of the Jews and the Gentiles. He leaves it there for us to see not only was Paul not swayed by the response of either group, but he continued to be faithful to Jesus himself. And he continued to be fruitful and to offer Christ to those who would hear the truth of the gospel. And so as the book started, the book ends we encounter the question, what is it that you believe about Jesus? If Jesus is who he said he was, if Jesus is who he claimed to be God, come down to this earth to live a perfect life on our behalf, to pay for our sin, so that we would not have to pay for it. If Jesus was killed at the cross, put into the tomb for three days, and resurrected on the third day by God to show that he had beaten sin and death, he had conquered Satan once and for all, then it's also true to say that Jesus accomplished all of this work through his Holy Spirit. And if he has been raised from the dead, Paul tells us that we are in debt to him. That he is the king who has conquered, and we have the opportunity now to decide what we will do with him. Will we decide to be our own king, or will we come under his rule? 
I think we see from Paul that he encourages us to see that the way to life, the way to live through difficulty and suffering and trials is to come under the rule of the king. When you come under Jesus' rule, he has control of everything and sees everything and sustains everything. And there's nothing more safe than to be under his rule. And this is what we are invited into. And it doesn't cost us a thing. It's just mind-blowing. The scriptures tell us, call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. And this is the name that Paul is lifting up. Simply, we identify with that thief who was at the cross with Jesus. That's all he did. He called upon the name of the Lord. He didn't have to believe the right things of like all these different theological nuances. All he did was say, I, th- I think you are who you say you are. Will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? That was enough of a confession And Jesus said, today, today you will be with me. That simple. This is what I encourage you to do. To ask that of Jesus. Say, Lord, will you remember me? And when you make that request, he will say, I'll remember you. Now let's walk together and I will show you what it like, what it is like to be with me. Let's make that request this morning. Lord, I want to be with you. And we'll let him respond to us. He'll say, yes, I want to be with you too. So let's make that request today in honesty, with earnestness, in truth. Because that's really what our souls long for, what we really need, what we're really after, to know him, to be with him. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your kindness to us. We're thankful for your faithfulness to us at the cross. We're thankful, Lord, for the book of Acts, that you've given us this um, record of your Holy Spirit moving through 28 chapters. And Lord, we see you accomplishing your work. And we see that you are the head of the church, that you are leading your people. Lord, and we want to know you and we want to be with you. And so, Lord, change us and transform us. Give us your, your Holy Spirit as we ask to be yours, as we make that confession together that we need you. We know, Lord, that you will make us new. You will create in us a clean heart. We'll become new creations. Lord, and we're thankful that you will bring us into your family. And so, Lord, we rejoice in that, that our names will be written in heaven. And so, Lord, we celebrate you this morning and we respond to you in worship and thanksgiving. We love you. Amen.